This is Kick-Ass Politics. I'm Ben Mathis. If you're listening for the first time, this is a preview station for Kick-Ass Politics, where I put up a few sample episodes for you to check out. I hope you enjoy this episode, and if you like it, then I encourage you to go to our main program at Kick-Ass Politics and subscribe to the show. There are a lot more episodes there. Just search for Kick-Ass Politics on iTunes, or if you go to the information page for this episode on iTunes, there's a link right there to subscribe to the main show. Also, feel free to check out our webpage at kickasspolitics.com, where you'll find show notes, book recommendations, and all kinds of extras. I'm Ben Mathis, and I hope you enjoy this preview of Kick-Ass Politics. Kick-Ass Politics is brought to you by Fiverr. You've heard me rave about Fiverr before. Fiverr is the world's largest online marketplace for services with over 100,000 categories all offered for a fixed base price of just $5. Logo design, business consulting, marketing, business cards, web design, translation, transcription, proofreading, legal consulting, and just about any other service you can imagine all offered at a base price of just $5. And right now, when you go to kickasspolitics.com and click on the Fiverr ad on our sponsor page, you'll be showing our sponsor that you support the show and you'll get some great offers on services tailored to your needs. Whatever you need done, find it on Fiverr. The battle of Britain is about to begin. Upon this battle depends the survival of Christian civilization. Upon it depends our own British life and the long continuity of our institutions and our empire. The whole fury and might of the enemy must very soon be turned on us. Hitler knows that he will have to break us in this island or lose the war. If we can stand up to him, all Europe may be freed and the life of the world may move forward into broad, sunlit uplands. But if we fail, then the whole world, including the United States, including all that we have known and cared for, will sink into the abyss of a new dark age, made more sinister and perhaps more protracted by the lights of perverted science Let us therefore brace ourselves to our duty and so bear ourselves that if the British Empire and its commonwealths last for a thousand years, men will still say, this was their finest hour. That was an excerpt from a speech that Prime Minister Winston Churchill gave before the British House of Commons on June 18, 1940. He was barely six weeks into office when France fell to Nazi Germany, giving Hitler control of continental Europe. Although Britain had somehow managed to evacuate most of the 300,000 soldiers from the beaches at Dunkirk, they left behind 700 tanks, 500 anti-aircraft guns, 850 anti-tank guns, 11,000 machine guns, and 45,000 transport vehicles. It would be an understatement to say that the United Kingdom was poorly prepared to fight a world war, much less fight it single-handedly. Russia wouldn't declare war on Hitler for another year, and the U.S. wouldn't enter the war for another year and a half. For all purposes, Britain was the last man standing. Many in Churchill's own government, 
privately or even publicly favored surrender in hopes of negotiating some kind of acceptable terms with Hitler. Were it not for the steely resolve of Winston Churchill, Britain very well might have caved into fascism. And from that point, it's not hard to imagine that the world might be a very different place today. More than any man of the 20th century, Winston Churchill came the closest to single-handedly saving the world. In honor of the anniversary of Sir Winston's passing, I'm talking with my friend Dr. Stephen F. Hayward about some of the qualities that made Winston Churchill the greatest leader of the 20th century. Dr. Hayward is the Ronald Reagan Visiting Professor at the Pepperdine Graduate School of Public Policy. He's written several books, including Greatness, Reagan, Churchill, and the Making of Extraordinary Leaders, and Churchill on Leadership, Executive Success in the Face of Adversity. So keep a stiff upper lip, because I'll be back in a moment with Dr. Stephen F. Hayward and Churchill on Leadership. Hollywood to Washington, it's time for Kick-Ass Politics. And now here's your host, Ben Mathis. I'm thrilled to be joined again by Dr. Stephen F. Hayward. Dr. Hayward is the Ronald Reagan Distinguished Visiting Professor at the Public Policy School at Pepperdine University. And he is also the author of several books on really my favorite person of all time, my ultimate hero, uh, Winston Churchill. I wanted to talk to him about a particular book. There are two books that I give out to friends and business associates all the time. Uh, one of them is Dennis Prager's book, uh, Happiness is a Serious Problem. And the other one is your book, uh, Churchill on Leadership, because oh. they're just so packed with wisdom and useful stuff in there. And they're nice and compact and small. So I know if I give it to someone, you know, it's I'm not giving them a homework assignment. I know that they'll finish the book. <laughs> oh, that's very kind of you, Ben. Thanks. So I have always admired Churchill, even from from childhood. Uh, I, I would go to London with my family several times. We, we went to London when I was a child. And I remember going to the Churchill War Rooms with my father. And even at that young age, I didn't really understand the significance of it. But yeah. you could just feel the weight of the man um, and, and the history there. It's often said that Churchill, from a very early point in his life, knew that he was special. He knew, he had a sense that he was keenly aware that he had a destiny, a place in history. What was it about Winston Churchill that separated him from other men? You know, that's a question that you really can't ever answer. Uh, I mean, you can explore the nature of political ambition or, you know, individual human genius. You know, Churchill himself, well, he said two things about this, at least two things. One was the famous remark he made at a dinner party when he was saying, curse ruthless time, you know, curse mortality, you know, as short as the allotted span of time on earth, because we're all worms. And then he pauses and says, but I think I'm a glow worm, he says, right? <laughs> so he certainly had an ego. But he did it in a more serious vein when he wrote a very long biography of his famous ancestor, the first Duke of Marlborough. Um, he said that uh, genius or statesmanship can't be taught, or great generalship for that matter, which is a similar thing, can't be taught. It's innate, he thought. You're born that way. Uh, and I mean, the contrast is, is, you know, Winston Churchill had a brother, 
that we've never heard of. I mean, he was a stockbroker, an eminently respectable person in London, and Churchill, he died at a relatively young age of 50-something, I think, but Churchill was close to him personally, but in all other respects, he was sort of just an ordinary human being, whereas Winston Churchill is this towering figure, not just of the century, but I'd argue of the last thousand years in many ways. Yeah, and even from a very young age, and probably very much to his contemporaries' consternation, (laughs) uh, he seemed to have this idea that he was different that yes. he was headed towards something big. I feel that perhaps that was what uh, steeled him for all the adversity that he would experience in his early years and when, during his wilderness years after World War I. Yeah, and you know, even his uh, critics would say of him that he was a person of great genius and ability. And, and that those critics would say is the problem is, is that, um, you know, I think it was, I don't know if it was Asquith or who said this of him, that God had given him so many gifts that God looked down from heaven and said, he has too many, we'll have to take one away from him, and took away judgment, because that's what always was the knock on him, is that his judgment wasn't very good. Well, I think you can quarrel with that. I think his judgment was actually excellent in most regards. Um, and you know everybody makes some mistakes, but some of the mistakes attributed to him were uh, attributed not fairly, in my judgment. That's a long story. You can walk through some of those sort of as examples. Um, but yeah, he he, uh, he I think you know he was a person of extraordinary genius and drive, and he knew it. You know, he was writing at a very early age about his ambitions to enter the political world and to make a mark uh, for himself. Uh, and 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 then of course you know his ambition therefore was very obvious to people, and that can put people off sometimes, right? When you're too openly ambitious, uh, it was true when he was in the army as a young officer. But he would take huge risks, and that's a actually I think it was Margot Asquith, the daughter of Henry Asquith, said. You know, his capacities are amazing, but Winston, my goodness, he takes huge risks. Uh, well, you know, there's the other old cliche that without much risk, um, uh, you know, to get great rewards, you have to take great risks, and he certainly did. A lot is made of his defeat in the Battle of the Dardanelles during World War One, and the years that came after that, uh, that his political wilderness years. What did he learn from that experience? Oh, yeah, that's very important. I mean, first of all, for people who don't know what you're maybe talking about, uh, you know, the Dard- if maybe you've seen the movie Gallipoli, which dramatizes the, the route of the, really the Australian and New Zealand forces there on the Turkish peninsula in 1915. And it was thought to be Churchill's fault that they got into this fiasco. And it's really not quite true. It's, much, it's a very complicated and tangled story. Churchill favored a naval expedition against what was still then called Constantinople or Istanbul today. And the Navy came within an ace of succeeding, but they lost their nerve at the last moment. And you know, Churchill wanted to order the Navy to try one more time. And we actually had uh, some intelligence at the time, subsequently vindicated by historical research, that the Turks were out of shells. The British Navy could have sailed in virtually unopposed the next day through the, the Bosporus and shelled Constantinople and knocked Turkey out of the war. That would have changed the entire Eastern Front, would have relieved Russia, could have changed the course of the entire war. And even one of Churchill's uh, bitter rivals years later, Clement Attlee, said it was the one, the only decent idea in the First World War that was otherwise such a mess, right? And yet um, he gets all the blame for it. Well, he him. got the blame because what happened was is the army said, oh, leave it to us. We'll send down uh, an expeditionary force and we'll just invade the old-fashioned way. Well, that wasn't Churchill's idea. His idea was, as he put it, by ships alone we'll force this. And, uh, and what happened is, is the army took four or five months to get there. Well, that meant that the Turks and the Germans were able to reinforce the peninsula, and it turned into the slaughterhouse, um, and, which, and that became blamed on Churchill because everyone said, oh, it was Churchill's idea to attack Turkey through the Dardanelles. 
when in fact it wasn't his original idea. And a commission later exonerated him, but it didn't matter. It's one of those political charges that sticks to you, to you like, you know, in the last few years, remember that George W. Bush was holding a plastic turkey in Iraq. I mean, that's been debunked more times and still shows up on the left, right? Because the yeah. people who hate George W. Bush. Uh, Churchill could never shake that. However, what he did learn from it was very important. Uh, you know, he wanted to order the Navy. He was first Lord of the Admiralty, which is our secret, like our Secretary of the Navy. But only the Prime Minister could order the Navy to uh, uh, give him a command as Commander-in-Chief to resume the attack. The Navy refused, and Churchill begged the Prime Minister Asquith to order the Navy. And Asquith wouldn't do it. He says, well, if the Navy doesn't want to do it, I'm not going to order them to. And the lesson Churchill took from that was he attempted to he, he assumed authority with, uh, uh, sorry, responsibility without authority. That was the rule he laid down. If I am going to take uh, responsibility for some supreme operation, as he put it, I need to have full authority to see it through. Uh, and his mistake, as he put it, was trying to direct a supreme effort of the war from a subordinate position. That's why, when he became prime minister in 1940, he also assumed the position of defense minister at the same time. Very rarely, or maybe never, that's been done. And that's because he wanted to be able to give orders if he thought they were necessary. Now, having said that, Churchill would argue with his generals ferociously, sometimes very bitterly during World War II, on what he thought they should do. He never overruled them, though. He never ordered them to do something that they said they were adamantly opposed to. But he did think as a management and leadership and and governing principle that authority and responsibility should always be commensurate. And that was the the bitter lesson of the Dardanelles fiasco for him. Well, you definitely get a sense that he was very much hands-on militarily throughout (laughs) the entire war. Did he have a reputation as a bit of a micromanager? Uh, yes. Now, uh, um, although what should be said was is that you know Churchill thought that uh, competent administration prods at all details at all levels. <laughs> On the other hand, he liked to delegate stuff, and he understood that you couldn't do that relentlessly. But he was always sending little half-page or two-sentence memos saying, are we paying attention to this? Are we paying attention to that? Please report back. And mostly he didn't even care about the report sometimes. He just wanted to make sure that people understood that he was paying attention, and he wanted to make sure they were paying attention to their jobs in every detail. Uh, so, yeah, he could be something of a meddler. That's true. Um, and uh, but but once again, you know, he uh, he knew when to back off. Um, and again, I, you know, you have to take that on a case by case basis. And overall, I think he had pretty good judgment. Well, one of the things that you talk about in your book is Winston Churchill's knack for the common touch and plain-spokenness. That's one of the things that always intrigued me about Winston Churchill. You have this man who's a son of privilege, born huh. into British aristocracy, and yet he was he, he could relate to the common man. You, when you look at World War II and you look at you know Hitler, who was very much isolated from the yeah. German people, often the Berghof, versus Winston Churchill, who almost every day was out in the streets surveying the damage from the blitz, shaking hands, encouraging the people, giving the the stiff upper lip. Where does that come from? Did that come naturally to him, or was that something that he had to acquire over time, given his upbringing? Well, you know, it it, it is a little bit of a paradox, because he certainly didn't live the common man's life, right? (laughs) He he never drove his whole life, I don't think, uh, or maybe very little. he was a small-D Democrat. He was very Democratic that way. You're right, walking around through the rubble and you know hugging wives whose houses had been bombed and so forth. Um, and oddly enough, he got some of that from his father, Lord Randolph. His father was a lord, right? Lord Randolph Churchill used to say, uh, trust the people. His, his father was very Democratic in that sense. 
even though his father was even more sort of remote and aristocratic than Winston was. So, yeah, that somehow was in his bones. And But it did translate into his public speaking, partly which he did learn from his father. But one little thing that you may not notice unless you pay close attention or have it pointed out to you is he liked short words. You know, he didn't like jargon, uh, and he hated uh, complicated sentences. I mean, he could give very poetic sentences, but he was usually quoting the King James Bible, for example, just as Lincoln did, right? Mm -hmm. But he tended to f favor speeches and, and uh, you know, verbal formulations that used short words. And, you know, these days, uh, everybody, politicians, but everybody in between, we tend to like to think we have to impress audiences by using long words and jargon. Churchill always made war on jargon. And in fact, there's a few exceptions to that, or the exceptions that prove the rule. He once used the phrase in the House of Commons, uh, he didn't want to admit that something was a lie, the term he used was, well, to say that, would that would be to say a terminological inexactitude. <laughs> and the whole House of Commons roared with laughter because they understood that this was Churchill pulling their leg because that was not his kind of language. And so that was, you know, one of those odd little stories that they say is the exception that proves the rule. Well, he, he did, on the other hand, it's interesting because he did, um, he was incredibly eloquent and he did have uh, an amazing vocabulary. He, you know, he yeah. had this knack for always choosing the mot juste, as the French would say, right. the perfect word, the perfect way to phrase something. How did he strike that balance between very much the candor and plain spokenness versus the eloquent orator? Well, you know, the, the interesting thing is, is he wrote a letter to his mother when he was maybe 25 years old. You can now find this online if you Google it. Just look up uh, Churchill or Winston Churchill and the scaffolding of rhetoric, and it will pop up. Because it actually was printed as sort of a separate essay, even though it was part of a long letter to his mother. And what he says was, I, I, I've, I've discovered there are six elements to rhetoric. And he then goes on really to name just four of them. But, uh, but part of it is the accumulation of argument. Um, uh, that's why you know, the title is interesting, the scaffolding of rhetoric. I think what scaffolding is like, you know, you sort of build these things up and you know, one story after another, and you can see the whole building shape come into view. Um, and, you know, one is the accumulation of argument, um, as well as diction and rhythm. He was very big on rhythm. He thought good speaking should be poetic, right? Um, and there's a rhythm of language that, uh, you know, he says actually grabs a hold of the, the emotions of the listener. Some of this, by the way, you can find as far back as Aristotle's rhetoric, but Churchill figured this out all on his own at a very early <laughs> age. Well, one thing that I found interesting about him is his, his speech writing process. It was ah. usually late at night. He would <laughs> dictate to a secretary, and he would play what the, what he called martial music, or mar as we would call marching music, right. as he was crafting a speech. Right. Yeah, well, I mean, he had odd habits from our point of view. You know, he did like to work till very late at night, early hours of the morning, like to sleep in, not late, but, you know, eight thirty nine o'clock, and then work in bed in the morning. Um it's a myth that he, uh, you know, he would have a whiskey and soda, but it was a very weak whiskey and soda, and he would sip on it all morning long. So the uh, it's always been exaggerated how much he drank, although he was one of the authors of that exaggerated that exaggeration himself. I think that was he a— He did kind of embrace it. Yes, uh, absolutely. He he liked to play that up the way people do, right? It's sort of a macho thing. Well, um, there, you know, there's that story from when he was—during the war, he was visiting the White House uh, <laughs> and visiting uh, Franklin Roosevelt for an extended period— and uh, he sent one of the butlers to fetch uh, a fifth of whiskey. He said to the butler, he said, if anyone ever says that I'm a teetotaler, 
I expect you to come to my defense, <laughs> right. young man. And this poor young butler, he said, Mr. Churchill, I'll defend you to the last front. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, Churchill traveled in the United States several times during Prohibition. Um, and <laughs> That must have been hard for him. Well, except that he would always bring a trunk of liquor with him, right? And he would talk about how, you know, I mean, this is off our main subject, but during Prohibition, uh, you know, prominent foreigners would always get through customs with a wink and a nod and say, this is hair gel or something silly like that. And the custom people say, okay, not like today, right? So, I mean, this is well known that when especially foreign dignitaries from Europe came over, they could bring all the liquor they wanted. And that's why they were prized guests for Americans, too. (laughs) (laughs) We'll be back to talk some more about Churchill's favorite vices and his great leadership qualities after just a moment here with Dr. Stephen Hayward. I hope you're enjoying our tribute to the great Winston Churchill. And you know, if there's one thing Winston Churchill loved, it's a stiff drink and a fine cigar. So in his honor, three of our sponsors are offering our listeners some great deals so that you too can indulge in a few of Winston Churchill's favorite pleasures, like wine. Since 1992, Gold Medal Wines has been America's leading independent wine club. All of their wines have won multiple medals from major wine competitions and feature high ratings from Wine Spectator, Wine Enthusiast, and other national wine publications. And hey, if you're a beer snob, they've got you covered too with Craft Beer of the Month Club. They discover exceptional craft brews from all over the world and deliver them right to your door every month. And right now, if you go to the show site at kickasspolitics.com and click on the ads on our sponsor page, they've got exclusive deals just for listeners of the show. Deals like 45% off wines rated 90 points and up from Gold Medal Wines and special gifts for our listeners from Craft Beer of the Month. And last but not least, if you really want to live it up like Winston Churchill, you've got to indulge in a fine cigar with that drink. Winston Churchill's favorite cigar was Romeo y Giulietta. And right now, in his honor, if you go to the sponsor page at kickasspolitics.com, JR Cigars is offering a special deal just for our listeners 10 Romeo y Giulietta cigars for $10. JR Cigars is the world's largest cigar store, so they offer all kinds of discounts on the finest cigars in the world. And if you visit kickasspolitics.com, all three of these sponsors are offering our listeners free shipping. So go to our sponsor page so you too can enjoy some of life's great pleasures in true Winston Churchill style. And while you're there, I hope you'll click on the donate button to help support the show and keep us on the air. Or you can visit gofundme.com backslash kickasspolitics to make a donation. Your support will help keep the lights on over here and keep us producing new and interesting programs for you, our listeners. And now, more Churchill on leadership. We're back with Dr. Stephen F. Hayward, and we're talking about Winston Churchill. Dr. Hayward is the author of Churchill on Leadership, and I'd love to talk to you about some of the great lessons that we can get from Winston Churchill. Uh, First of all, where did he get his energy from? Where did he get his resilience? When you think of this guy who was a prime minister and, you know, not a young guy, you know, for five years, much of that being pretty much trapped in an underground bunker, you've on very little sleep. um, And yet you never see a sense, at least in the moment, that it took a toll on the man. Well, I I think it probably did. I mean, he was 65 when he became prime minister. 
and he did have uh, at least one heart attack during uh, World War II. I'm not sure how serious it was. I think, I'm not sure at the time we knew that, but he did. At, I think it was in 1943. He had to had to rest up for a few weeks uh, and cut back his work schedule because uh, the demands were extreme. Now nobody placed more demands on himself than he did. And, you know, we mentioned how he used to like to work at night. One of the secrets of his life is, and this is something he learned in India. Actually, he learned it traveling in Cuba when he was in his 20s. Uh, is he got in the habit of taking an afternoon nap every day. And what he said was that allows you to get two days of work into one because you can work in the morning and through the middle of the afternoon, then take a, and he would, by the way, would completely disrobe down to his underwear, get under covers and take a nap for an hour or so. And then get up and take a bath, and then he put in another whole day till after midnight. And by the way, this was just hell on his staff because uh, they would have to try his secretaries, and he would have squads of them. But you know, they'd have to try and keep up with this. And he'd be having meetings with his generals and his top staff at midnight. Uh, of course, they had to during the the worst days of the war and in, in the summer and fall of 1940. Um, but he kept up that uh, that kind of schedule throughout much of his life, actually. And as I say, he said that allows you to get at least a day and a half's work into one day or sometimes two days work into one day. So he was a workaholic that way. I'm tempted to say he got his energy. <laughs> he might say he got his energy from uh, living well, <laughs> right? You know, he liked his lamb roasts and leg of lamb and, you know, Paul Roger champagne and his nice whiskeys and good cigars. And uh, there may be something to all that. I wouldn't, I wouldn't be uh, too hasty to discount well, any of that. He did live to how long? How long 90. He, he lived 90? to be 90. And that yeah. was a surprise to him because his father died, I think, at age 40. Six, maybe it was 44. His father died young. We think of it either a brain tumor. Well, the rumors are syphilis or a brain tumor. While we're on the subject, what was his work routine like? How, how was his day scheduled out generally? Well, well and, yeah. and did it vary between the war and you know before and after the war? It didn't um, vary a whole lot except maybe the intensity and maybe somewhat longer hours during the war. But for a very long time in his life... Um, you know, it would be waking up in the morning and having, uh, uh, you know, breakfast in bed and working in bed on papers and letters and dictating things. And then he'd rouse himself late in the morning, have lunch, and then work in his study for a while in the afternoon. Or maybe going to London if, um, if the House of Commons was meeting. The House of Commons then, as today, often meets at night. And that's when their great debates take place. Uh, and then, you know, take his nap. And, and uh, so he would be in the House of Commons or the London clubs in the evening with doing meetings and strategizing and plotting and whatnot, or, or going off somewhere to give a speech. If he stayed at home at his country home at Chartwell, uh, the evening is typically when he would write, you know, read and write and dictate on the many books he wrote. I have to remember that Churchill made his living as an author, and I, right. I think adjusted for inflation, he may still be, I don't know, some of the people like Tom Clancy and some of the mega novelists today probably make more, but for a nonfiction author, he may still have the the record, as I say, adjusted for inflation as the highest paid journalist of the 20th century. Well, that's right, because, you know, he was he he was technically an aristocrat, but he was not a wealthy son of privilege necessarily. That's right. Really, he had to work. The 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 greater family. Well, he was the second. You know, his father had been the second son of the Duke of Marlborough. So his father did not inherit the dukedom, which in England, you know, they try and keep in one hand. Didn't matter anyway, because the dukedom was on hard times by the 20th century. Churchill had a small bequest from an uncle, or I forget exactly what, in Ireland that provided him a small income. Uh, but no, he had to, uh, as he put it, he lived, uh, since he dictated his writing, he lived from mouth to hand. <laughs> <laughs> and you no, know, he, he was often in the 30s uh, deeply in debt, 
almost had to sell his house at one point to settle his debts. Uh, he got wiped out in two stock market crashes when he was overexposed in the stock market. And it really wasn't until after World War II when his war memoirs were worldwide bestsellers, when he won the Nobel Prize for Literature. Uh, it wasn't until then that he and his family were really finally comfortably uh, uh, wealthy. One of the things you brought up earlier was that he liked to stay in bed till about 11 and work from bed or from the bathtub. And I remember <laughs> in your book, it talks about one of the great things about him is that he was always changing his environment. If he felt that he was uh, wearing down or his brain yeah. was getting a little a little tired, he would go paint or he would take a bath or he would go in his backyard and start working on building a brick wall. Right. Whatever it took, uh, you would dictate memos from the bathtub. <laughs> <laughs> right. Uh, yeah, that was always a funny process. Um, yeah, his one-sentence slogan was, change is the master key. Hmm. Uh, you could, I don't know, I could put that on a bumper sticker, I yeah. think. Um, yeah, he was a big believer in breaking routine and monotony. And, yeah, I mean, I guess that takes a little imagination. You know, most of us are used to going to the same desk every day and sort of carrying about in the same way. And, you no, know, he was a big believer in variety. Uh, and so, yeah, oh, and you mentioned painting. I mean, he took up painting in World War One after he was kicked out of the cabinet uh, you know, as a hobby to distract him from really his depression. I mean, he was he was just distraught about the way the war had gone and the way his Dardanelles initiative had miscarried. And so he took up painting and turned out to be pretty good at it. Uh, you know, some critics have said if he'd really done that as his main life, he could have made his way as a painter. Uh, and, you know, his paintings nowadays, of course, are quite valuable when they're up for auction. But they're sort of neo-impressionist, you might say. Um, he wrote a little essay about it called Painting as a Pastime that's very much worth reading. Where he talked he liked about landscapes, his landscapes, right? He liked landscapes and he liked bold, vivid colors, as he liked yes, to he say. Yes, he did. That's he right. Didn't, he didn't care for the poor browns, as he called them. <laughs> yeah, I, I love some of his paintings from when he was in Morocco. He used to, I yes. think, he used to spend winters uh, at the the old La Mamounia Hotel in Marrakesh and would paint the out high Atlas Mountains from yes. his balcony. And the he, the only he only painted one painting in World War II because uh, he was too busy, and that was of the Atlas Mountains in Marrakesh because that was where one of the summits was in right. 1943. That was the only one he did then, but he liked to return there. He also liked the south of France a lot, and he yeah. visited there a lot and would paint during the day and lose money in the casinos at night. <laughs> oh, was, was he a gambler? That's something. That's of one, one vice yeah. that I wasn't aware that he had. You know, I don't know. Huh. Uh, well, he, he he was always fond of racehorses and had a small stable of racehorses after World War II. Huh. Um, I don't think he was a big okay. gambler, but he liked to do it, and I think he was probably maybe a little reckless at it, like people like that can be. <laughs> That's what you hear anyway. Right. Okay. I didn't know that. That's fascinating. <laughs> um, you just mentioned a minute ago um, his depression. A lot of great leaders really fought with depression, uh, not just uh, Churchill, but you yeah. know, Lincoln and many others. And he had what he would call his black dog days right. pretty frequently, especially during those, you know, those wilderness years. How did he combat that? And how, how did he pull himself out of that? Yeah. Well, I think in Churchill's case, I think this may be overstated some. Uh, there's a there's a lively argument about this um, among psychologists who've looked at it and historians and and whatnot. So I think we want to hold that as something of an open question. He didn't mention that he had his black dog, um, and he would tie it to the fact that he saw, you know, disaster looming on the horizon, thought he could stop it if he had the power to do so, and felt helpless that he couldn't. Right? Uh, I think Lincoln's depression is much more. Uh, authentic, and there you can see it, I think, rooted clearly in, you know, he, he, he got the casualty reports every night, and certainly that was not something that 
Lincoln wanted to see happen, right? That would depress anybody. Um, so as to how Churchill rallied, I, I think what he did is just redouble his resolve. It just, I think it fueled him to go on, uh, you know, being stubborn and giving those speeches. I mean, remember, he was under tremendous pressure in the 30s to stop talking about Hitler, stop criticizing the government of his own party. And, you know, they kept holding out uh, carrots and sticks to him. You know, if you just shut up about this, we might bring you back in the government and give you a job. So they were trying to bribe him, so to speak. And then the sticks were, they actually, uh, the conservative party tried to force him out of his own seat in the House in, I think, 1938. That's right. Uh, I think it was 1938 or maybe even early 1939. And so, uh, you know, he was under tremendous pressure, and I think that just stiffened his spine. That, and whenever he got down, he'd say, well, it's time to give another strong speech or write another rousing article about the danger we're in. When he was brought back into the government, how did he manage that? You know, as the guy who was constantly deriding yeah. the current government and therefore in policy, how, was there a little bit of him just just shutting up and saying, just <laughs> play ball for about a month or two here yeah. or a year? And then you, or how, what was his thought, thought process like there? And what's well, that's a that? that's a really good question. So he he joins the cabinet as uh, his old job, first Lord of the Admiralty, right. and joins the small war cabinet to run the war, starting on September second or third, nineteen thirty nine. And he's not made prime minister until May, which is what eight months later, eight nine months later, uh, May tenth of nineteen forty. So during all that time, he's in a subordinate position, subordinate to Neville Chamberlain, who he's criticized so harshly. On the other hand, he had in some ways the most important job in the cabinet because the British Navy was the pillar of the British defense establishment. Right. And so he was busy running the Navy and trying to make things happen. And, you know, insofar as anybody was taking the fight to the Germans, it was the Navy. Um, you know, in the 1940, the submarine war starting, and that, that's a very long story. But, um, and, but, it, but publicly, on the floor of the House of Commons, he became the leading defender of the government even against critics in his own party. And ultimately, that wasn't enough to save Chamberlain. I mean, when the debate came on May 9th, I think, of 1940, and what happened was you had a confidence vote, and Churchill won the vote. Uh, sorry, Chamberlain won the confidence vote in the House. However, something like 90 members of the conservative party abstained. And that meant that his support was actually gone because you had so many people in your own party, plus the other party. The other part of it was is that as they'd done in World War One, the feeling was, and the king also, is that we need to have a, 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 a coalition government, a government of national unity. And the Labor Party says Chamberlain has to go. He's no good. And you have a lot of conservatives saying we're fed up with Chamberlain. Uh, but Churchill had given the final speech defending Chamberlain in, in that debate, huh. which shows that you know when uh, when Churchill's in the tent with you, you know he's a pretty loyal guy uh, and will defend you stoutly. Um, but I have to think he kind of saw the handwriting on the oh, wall, yeah. and he knew, yeah, it, it was a somewhat perhaps a half-hearted defense, or not even half-hearted, but he knew that nothing was going to save Chamberlain and his that's, place in history. That's was ready probably for right. He uh, he <laughs> sent uh, either a telegram or a note to his son Randolph uh, at on the 9th, 8th or 9th, saying, I, I think it's quite possible that I'm going to be prime minister in the next 48 hours. <laughs> so, yeah, he did know. He could see around corners. Yeah. That's one of the great qualities that he had. Um, what was his decision-making process like? Well, um, you know, it's fairly logical and orderly. Um, above all, what he thought was that you should always make a decision. You shouldn't temporize you shouldn't change your mind. I mean, the big problem for him in World War I is that they would discuss things forever and not make a decision. 
or the war cabinet World War I would make a decision and then they would unmake it hours or the next day. And so what Churchill thought was is all decision-making processes should be driven through to the point of decision, and then you should stick with that decision. And he said, I forget his exact words, but the point he made was, is even if it's the wrong decision, it's better to have one than to not have one. It gives clarity to everybody around you about what you're doing. And by the way, he added to this when he was prime minister. He says, I want all decisions in writing so there's a record of it, so there's no confusion <laughs> about what we decided. That would happen in World War I is the, the war cabinet would make a decision and they'd sort of communicate this verbally and then there'd be confusion about what it meant. And then people say, well, I'm not sure what we meant. Churchill, World War II, his rule was all decisions shall be made and memorialized in writing. Not just for the historical record, but so we know and it can go forward. So, Well, that right know, there is a pretty good executive lesson, I would say. It seems like a simple lesson, but you'd be amazed at how few people seem to grasp it and follow it. <laughs> I'm curious, what are some of your other favorite lessons from Churchill that apply not just to politicians, but to the executive or just lessons in leadership? that you find most useful across the board? Yeah, well, we've already mentioned three of them, but it's worth tying them together. One is the importance of decisiveness, which I say sounds simple, but seems not to be. Uh, two, uh, having authority and responsibility in equal measure uh, and not making somebody responsible for some project or some task without giving them the full authority to, all, to do all the things necessary to accomplish it. Um, let's see, what's some of the other ones? Oh, learning from your mistakes. That, again, is also a cliche, uh, except that uh, we tend to avoid these things, right, or, you know, not recognize the mistakes and draw the lessons from them. Uh, a few others that uh, I mentioned in the book is, you know, Churchill, for all of his ability to be domineering, was also a pretty fair guy to people and a generous guy to people. Um, and, you know, he, uh, he wasn't shy about firing generals who weren't getting the job done, including ones he admired greatly. He didn't employ some of his best friends who he thought weren't able enough for the jobs that they wanted. Well, that's interesting. Yeah, no and that you know, that's no nepotism. Cabinet. Not you know, nepotism huh. usually means family, but no favoritism. Yeah, and you know, that's a hard thing to do because huh. you know a lot of people really backed him hard to get to be prime minister, and then you know they ended up not getting uh, uh, very good jobs or no jobs at all in some cases. And in some cases, he would appoint people who had been his critics or enemies because he knew they were able and would do the job that needed to be done. Um, you know, the British are maybe better at that than we are, I'm not sure, but uh, certainly Churchill was. Um, you know, he put in a couple of, uh, I, I think it was, um, it was a couple of jobs. I'm, I'm a little fuzzy now in the details, but I remember at the time of doing the, the research and reading his biographies that he would put in some key places some people who had been his fiercest critics in the House and in the media, because he knew they, they would do the job well. In your mind, why is Winston Churchill relevant today? Why is he still important? That, that is a, not only the great question, but it's the question, maybe the most important question. And, and here's why. Is an awful lot of people admire Churchill because he was this large historical figure. He was funny. He stood up to Hitler. But that's the whole point. He's a historical curiosity, the same way Napoleon is or Julius Caesar and my argument is exactly the opposite, that in fact he represents a fundamental human type that transcends all time and place. And so a lot of people, I think, make a mistake of saying, well, Churchill was great because he was in 1940. This was Christopher Hitchens' argument, and, and also William Manchester to some extent. He was great because he was a product of the Victorian era and he had Victorian values. And I think that that is to make a great mistake. I think um, what you ought to see is that he's a person of I say classical values. I mean, he goes back to Aristotle in some ways. And 
because he's a fundamental human type, it means that the potential of statesmanship, potential of human greatness at that level, is possible at any time. Now, you may not need it. Um, you may not have a Hitler. You may not have an existential crisis of civilization. Uh, on the other hand, it, it is possible and I think necessary to study the fundamental human type that he represents, that Lincoln represents, uh, that Ronald Reagan represents to some extent, too, um, for the lessons they can supply to anybody, whether they are engaged in enterprises great or small. That's yeah. my point. He really <laughs> was nothing less than extraordinary. Well, I always like to end with uh, a favorite joke or a favorite quote. I'm going to do a little twist on it uh, <laughs> this time, just because I could go on with you about Churchill for you know another two hours here. Yeah. Um, what is your favorite serious or, or meaningful uh, bit of wisdom or quote, anecdote by Churchill? And what is your favorite quote or anecdote about Churchill that showed kind of the cheeky, wisecracking, witty <laughs> side, the, well, the duality of Churchill? Right. Uh, well, the uh, I'll do the serious one first. Uh, although I tell the story in my book, Churchill on Leadership, and so I won't tell the whole story here, but at a very, very tough moment early in World War II, when it looked like they might lose, possibly, to the Germans, uh, Churchill says to his cabinet, um, how does he put it? He says, uh, let us go on fighting until each one of us lies choking in his own blood upon the floor. Wow. <laughs> exactly. And, you know, the cabinet stood at 40 people in the cabinet, the full cabinet, the sub-cabinet. They stood up and cheered him because uh, people were feeling kind of defeatist. And he was saying, you know, if we're going to go down, we're all going to go down, you know, fighting together. And he meant to himself, the Germans had invaded, he was going to stay in London and organize the defenses and pick up a gun himself, Right, well, which is crazy, but, you know. Yeah, yeah he did. Didn't he, he even say something along those lines to his daughter? I, I think he said, said, you know, if the Germans invade, I want you to... Yeah, grab a know. kitchen knife, he told her, and he told that to other people. Yeah, you know, he wanted to go ashore on D-Day, and the King of England, or at least go on a ship and watch the action from offshore. Right. And the King George finally had to step in and stop him, um, and... What King George said to him was, is, well, if you're going, then I'm going. And that's when Churchill said, okay, I won't go. They kept telling me you can't do this because it was a crazy idea, but that's what yeah. he was like. Uh, you know, there's a number of the funny stories told about Churchill. A few of them are not true, or probably not uh, true. Yeah, a lot of them are, are misattributed right. to him. To other people, yeah. that, you know. But uh, I tell people to go on telling them anyway because they have the ring of authenticity. But <laughs> I guess my favorite is slightly off color. It's when he's, uh, I, but I think it's okay for the a podcast. The best ones of his are. Well, we're not regulated by the FCC in a podcast, I don't think, right? And even so, I don't think it's a problem. It's the one where he, uh, and this one's supposed to be authenticated, he uh, is, um, goes into the men's room one day and goes all the way down to the far end of the stalls from Clement Attlee, his Labor Party opponent. And Clement Attlee, who's then prime minister, says to him, are you feeling standoffish today, Winston? And he says, of course I am. He says, whenever you socialists see anything big, you want to nationalize it. <laughs> I love that. Right. I love that. Yeah. Okay. Atley liked telling that story. Yeah, I, I, I swear. He was one of the funniest politicians there ever was. I think my favorite was, um, I, you'll have to correct me if I get any of this wrong, but I think he was at, at uh, an event in Canada, and he was sitting next to either a Methodist or a Presbyterian minister, and this very young, buxom waitress comes by and offers he and the, the preacher, uh, the pastor, uh, champagne, and the pastor says something along the lines of, I would sooner commit adultery than ever let liquor touch my lips. 
and Winston Churchill fetches the woman back, and he says, "Come, come back here, come back here." Uh, you know, I didn't realize that I had an option. So. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I hadn't heard that one, but I've heard some ones just like it. So yeah. that's a good one. Well, he certainly is an amazing, amazing, extraordinary man, and really was the great lion of the 20th century. So thank you so much again, Stephen, for joining us and talking to us about uh, my personal hero, Winston Churchill. Well, thanks for having me, Ben. This has been fun. Thank you. Well, folks, I hope you like the show. And especially if you're of the younger generation, I hope you have a newfound appreciation for just how much Winston Churchill did, not just for Britain, but really for the world. And again, thanks to Dr. Stephen F. Hayward for coming back on the show. In case you missed it, check out one of the earlier episodes titled The 50th Anniversary of Ronald Reagan's A Time for Choosing, in which I talked with Dr. Hayward about the iconic speech that launched Ronald Reagan's political career. If you enjoyed today's episode, then I think you'd really get a kick out of The Churchill Factor, How One Man Made History by London Mayor Boris Johnson. And right now, you can download the audio version of his book for free with a special promotion for our listeners from audible.com. Just go to audibletrial.com backslash kickasspolitics for a free 30-day trial and a free audiobook download, which can be The Churchill Factor by Boris Johnson or any of Audible's 180,000 titles for your iPhone, Android, Kindle, iPad, or MP3 player. That's audibletrial.com backslash kickasspolitics, or click on the sponsor link on our webpage. Be sure to subscribe to the podcast on iTunes so you get fresh episodes as soon as they're available, and leave us a review on iTunes. That actually helps us a great deal. And if you like what we're doing here at Kickass Politics, then please show your support for the show and make a donation by going to our GoFundMe campaign at gofundme.com backslash kickasspolitics or go to the show website and click on the donate link. I appreciate your encouragement and support. As always, I welcome your questions, comments, and suggestions at comments at kickasspolitics.com or you can call the toll-free listener voicemail at 844-KA-POLITICS. In the next podcast, I'm doing a short bonus to this episode in which I'll pay tribute to the wisdom and sometimes irreverent wit of Winston Churchill. He was arguably the most quoted political leader of the 20th century, so the catalog of memorable recitations by Churchill runs pretty deep, but I'll share with you just a few of my personal favorites by Sir Winston. So be sure to download the next podcast. Until then, I'm Ben Mathis, and thanks for listening to Kick-Ass Politics. Gas Politics is a trademark of Mathis Entertainment, Inc.